This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I'm Hunt Demarest, CPA from Parmelson Associates. Today we got an exciting one. We're going to be talking about everyone's favorite time of the year, tax season. I figured that there's no better time than now to talk about some quick tax tips and a lot of questions that we get asked this time of the year when we're preparing our clients' taxes. You know, what I always tell people is ask questions, right? I like to explain this because explaining why certain things happen on a tax return or the ideas behind it can allow you to operate your business better. You know, a lot of times people are like, oh, I don't want to bug you. I don't want to ask you why. There are some aspects of taxes that are fairly complicated and it's not an easy conversation to have, but at least be able to kind of give you the cliff notes behind the reasoning of why we do certain things or the way we operate. But before we get into the exciting world of taxes, I want to have a quick word from our partners who make this show possible. Sure, you know that your customers love you because they keep coming back, but you should probably capture that testimonial in writing with a five-star rating prompted by Broadly in the Shopware app. Learn more at GetShopware.com. At Repair Shop of Tomorrow, the focus is on helping shop owners unlock their full potential by specializing in an expert coaching and marketing program designed for your specific shop. For more information about their programs, please visit them at RepairShopOfTomorrow.com. All right. So one of the first things that I want to talk about is why we file extensions and what extensions do. And so we're going to be talking about really two different kinds of extension, business extensions and personal extensions. I hear people a lot on both sides of the aisle on this. Um, I have people that call and say, Hunt, I don't want to file extension. There's no reason to file an extension. I want my taxes filed. I want them filed on February 15th. I have some other people that refuse to get their uh, taxes filed in a timely manner. And they say, no, I want to extend it. I don't want to file it by April 15th. I'll make sure that it's done by September, October, but I don't want to file any sooner than that. You know, there's a lot of reasons. Some people just like don't like to delay and they want their stuff done in a timely manner, which is perfectly fine. I respect that. And honestly, if it works out, that's the ideal situation. There's generally not any good reason for most people to extend their tax return other than possibly they're just not prepared. Um, I know that people are busy and there's a lot of stuff going on there, and that's why extensions exist. However, for most people out there, especially most Americans that are not self-employed, you're going to be getting a refund back. So you're really just delaying that if you're going to extend it. Now, there are some reasons why we file extensions. and I want to kind of get into the reasoning behind that and hopefully let you understand a little bit more about the way that we operate and the way that your account operates as well. So first thing I want to talk about is the business extensions. And so S-Corporation and Partnerships, which most shops are, are due on March 15th. Personal tax returns, as you might know, are not due until April 15th. And so there's a little bit of timing right there. The reason why corporations and partnerships are due on March 15th and personals are not due for another month is they're trying to get people to finish up the partnership and S-corporation returns so they can send those K-1s out and have the individual owners be able to prepare their tax returns. You know, a K-1 is what tells you how much money your business made. If you're a 100% owner of it, that K-1 is going to have all of your income on there. If you're a 10% owner in a business, then it's going to show you what your proportionate share of the business income that you have to file, report, and pay taxes on. So 
In a normal year, we file extensions for almost all of our business clients. Um, now, some of our business clients we don't have to file an extension for because we're able to get their personal done before the March 15th deadline. But generally, most people do not have their information by March 15th to allow us to do their personal taxes as well. Now, you're probably saying, well, Hunt, why does my business tax return have anything to do with my personal tax return? They're two separate entities, which is exactly right, but there's a big catch there. So S-corporation and partnerships do not pay income tax on the actual tax return. So if you make $100,000, $300,000, a million dollars on your S-corporation, you're going to pay no federal tax on the actual S-corporation return itself. What ends up happening is that million dollars of income from your S-corporation is going to flow to your personal taxes, and then you pay it on the personal level. So the reason why we do not like to file a business tax return without filing a personal tax return is at the end of the year, there's some adjustments that we have to do. Namely, probably the biggest one is depreciation. How much depreciation should we take? Do we need to take all depreciation on this new truck? Can we take a little bit of it? Do we not need any of it? The only way to answer that question is to enter the business tax return, enter the personal tax return, and see where they stand. And we need to be able to make a decision. Does it make sense to take all this depreciation? Do they have enough income? Do, I, do they need this? Is their tax rate very low? Or is there some other things that's going on there? Possibly you're going to buy a house. Possibly you're going for student loans. Possibly you're going for financial aid for your kid. There's a lot of different decisions that need to be factored in here to make sure that the personal tax return and the income level reported on your personal tax return makes sense. We don't want it to be too high because too high means too many taxes. You don't want to be too low because possibly you're using up a bunch of deductions at a lower tax rate. We'll kind of get into that a little bit later. But the general idea here is how can I prepare your business tax return without doing your personal taxes? Every year around March 15th, I get that question. Well, Hunt, my old account never filed an extension for my business. He always filed that first and then later filed the personal taxes. Now, personal preference, I'm not going to tell someone how to run their business, how to do their taxes, but you really just should not ever file the business tax return without having the personal tax information at least factored into the equation. If you're completely ignoring what's going on in the personal tax situation, the only thing is that you can do is make an educated guess if it's the right or wrong move. Now, regarding your personal tax returns, you know, even for those of you that are sitting here and saying, you know what, Hunt, it's now April 4th. I haven't even started to think about taxes. I haven't got them together. I already told my accountant they're going to file an extension for me. That's fine, right? A lot of people have investments. A lot of people have outside investments, you know, other businesses that they're waiting on information from. Whatever might happen, there's a lot of reasons why extending your personal taxes as well makes sense. However, the one big difference that we have to think about here is there's no downside to extending an S-corporation return. If it's due in March, you can get a six-month extension. It's now not due till September. Doesn't matter because we're not going to pay any tax on the federal level on that. So there's really no downside to filing that extension. However, as I talked about before, all of the income from those S-corporation and partnerships and all of your other investments are flowing to your individual income tax. If you extend your, your personal tax return from April 15th to October 15th, you're extending your time to file but you are not extending your time to pay. And so that's a little bit of a weird idea here because people kind of think of those one and the same. Well, hon, I'm not going to pay. I don't need to pay anything. I'm going to extend it. I'll figure that out later. However, if you owe $10,000 and you pay that on April 15th, you're going to pay the IRS $10,000. 
That same example, if you wait till September 15th to make that payment, you're going to probably owe them $12,000 after penalty and interest are all done. So keep that in mind. Even the ones that we are extending, even the clients that we are planning to extend already, we're going down through, we're looking at the tax return, we're putting in, if they haven't sent the information in there, we're putting as much information as we possibly know to then address it with our clients. You know what? Fine. You're still working on your information. But for right now, let's send in a $5,000 estimated tax payment. That's going to allow us to make the extension, hopefully cover all the tax liability. And then when we go and file it down the road, there will be no issues because they've already paid in enough money. If you're already getting a refund or you know you're getting a refund, then of course you do not have to make any extension payment. You're already in a refund situation. You know, the big thing to remember here, guys, is the IRS really doesn't care about that return unless they're owed money. If they get their money, then they'll take the return whenever you get around to it. They just need that money. So just like I was talking about before, one of the major adjustments or major considerations that we have to think about at the end of the year revolves around depreciation. And when we talk about depreciation, a lot of people have heard the term called write-off. Hey, you can get that equipment. It's a write-off for your business. You can write off the entire amount in the first year. You can buy that truck for $80,000 and take the entire deduction. What are they talking about there? So what they're talking about there is two things. The first of which is probably the most common term, which is called Section 179 expense or 179. Hey, I'm going to 179 that piece of equipment. You might have thought in the back of your mind, I'm not really sure what that person is talking about. And so that's exactly what I want to address today. So 179 expense, and more recently, they have something else called bonus depreciation, is fancy terms for being able to depreciate the entire cost of the equipment in the first year. And so a for example, to think about this and put into real life terms, if you buy a large piece of equipment, you can either take the entire deduction in the first year through 179 expense or bonus depreciation, or you can elect to depreciate that piece of equipment over seven years. So let's use maybe an alignment rack as an example here. And for simple math, I'm going to say that the alignment rack costs me $70,000. I have two choices. I'm now filing my tax returns and I'm going to look at this and I'm going to say, all right, do I need a $70,000 depreciation deduction this year? Maybe I had a good year. Maybe my income is up. I didn't pay in enough in withholdings. So I'm really kind of getting hammered on taxes. Perfect. Great situation to write off the entire cost of that. And I'm going to get a $70,000 depreciation deduction in the first year. On the other side of things, maybe I don't need that deduction this year. Maybe I want to save that for future years. If you were to depreciate that like normal, you will get essentially a $10,000 deduction over the next seven years. Now, depreciation works a little bit differently. It's a little bit more heavily weighted in the front end than the long end. But the idea behind that is the same. You can either get the instant gratification and take it all now, or you can spread it over seven years. You might be thinking to yourself, well, Hunt, why would anyone ever try and spread it over seven years or even longer here? You want a deduction, you want to take it now. At the end of this kind of you know topic here, I'm going to go into situations of why it might not always make sense to take that entire cost in the first year, even if it's very tempting to sometimes. A couple other examples, you know, I was talking about equipment there. You know, equipment gets depreciated over seven years. Doesn't really matter how big or small the equipment is. You can take it, the entire cost in the first year if you would like to. When you started in this business, did you really think that cars would be driving themselves and that people would be buying cars online without test driving them? I don't think any of us did. 
Yet that's exactly what is going on. On the repair side, the auto industry is changing fast. Customers expect quick answers and proof that they need the repairs that you recommend. They want to pay you while buying a coffee, then rate you on Yelp after picking up their keys. So why stay in a past? A shop owner named Carolyn asked herself the same question, so she created an online shop management system that automates the stuff you do over and over again. She and her team added texting in every step in the process from booking your appointment to posting that stellar review. They learn from their customers just like you learn from yours, and it's the system that's leading the industry into a bright future. Find out more about this and other things at GetShopware.com. At Repair Shop of Tomorrow, the focus is on helping shop owners unlock their full potential by specializing in an expert coaching and marketing program designed for your specific shop. Their mission is to coach the owners to focus on growing their bottom line and building a team culture within their business. At the Repair Shop of Tomorrow, a Napa Auto Care endorsed program, they train the owners and the staff what right looks like, so everyone is on the same page and driving towards a common goal. Their coaching program focuses on all aspects of your business so that the owner can step back from the daily grind and start to work on their business and not in their business. For more information about their programs, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. So cars, trucks, SUVs all have a little bit different roles. And so you might have experienced this in the past of once you went and told your accountant or talking to someone and said, hey, I got a new vehicle. And they said, well, what is it? What kind? You know, what model? What trim package? You might just think that, you know, I'm curious and I want to know exactly what you bought. Now, sometimes that's true. If my clients buy something cool, I might ask a couple more questions. But a lot of those questions revolve around how we treat these on taxes. So in general, cars, trucks, and SUVs have the same rules for regular depreciation. You depreciate a vehicle over five years. So very similar to the way the equipment works, instead of taking the entire cost this year, you can elect to depreciate that cost over five years. However, for these different vehicles, you can also write off or 179 the entire cost in the first year. Now, depending on what type of vehicle is, is going to change the rules and how quickly we can take this depreciation. So one of the most common types of vehicles that we see a shop buy is usually a truck. Trucks are really one of the favorite deductions for two reasons. The first is it's very useful for most shops, right? You can go pick up stuff. You can drive customers. You can plow the lot. It's a very utilitarian vehicle. You can do whatever you need. Another reason why trucks are so popular is trucks qualify for accelerated depreciation. So one of the few things out there, no matter what it is, if it's a truck, it's got a full-size bed on it, you can take that entire cost in the first year. Doesn't mean if it's big, doesn't mean if it's a 3500, a 1500, an F-150. If you have a regular full-size truck, it qualifies for accelerated depreciation the first year. Another thing that always qualifies for depreciation the first year are large SUVs. And when I talk about large SUVs, the only thing that matters is what's called the GVWR, which stands for the Gross Vehicle Weight Rating. If that Gross Vehicle Weight Rating is 6,000 pounds or above, Again, you can write off the entire cost in the first year. If it is below that amount, then there's limitations and you cannot take the entire cost in the first year, only a portion of it. Now, how do you figure out if your vehicle qualifies? So in general, most of these car manufacturers have built these vehicles with this 6,000 pound limit in mind. 
if you look up a lot of vehicles, like a Jeep, Jeep Grand Cherokee, I think is a great example, because if you look up the gross vehicle weight rating of that, it's 6,001 pounds. Gross vehicle weight rating doesn't mean the curb weight or how much the actual vehicle weighs. It means what it's rated to load the entire thing with passenger and cargo and all that. And so a lot of these companies will make sure that they're over that 6,000 pound so that it qualifies for this accelerated depreciation. Most real full-size SUVs are over 6,000 pounds. So the Ford Explorer, the Chevy Tahoe, the Jeep Grand Cherokee, anything that's a real four-door, not a crossover, large SUV is going to qualify for this. If you have something that's on the edge of it, you know, you could ask the dealership, but I've seen in the past people have been misled. So just Google it. It's very straightforward. There's a lot of websites out there which actually list each vehicle and how much of it weighs. Now, remember when I talked about before, what, why does it matter on some of these trim levels? Because you got to be careful sometimes. And so there's vehicles which do not qualify and are not over 6,000 pounds in certain trim packages, but other trim packages put them over that 6,000 pound. A great example is I've seen that a good bit with hybrid vehicles. Generally, hybrid vehicles are a couple hundred pounds at least heavier than their regular internal combustion engine counterparts because of all the batteries and stuff like that. And so you could have a vehicle that comes in a V6 or a V6 hybrid, and there's a chance that that V6 gross vehicle weight rating is only 5,800 pounds, whereas the hybrid model is 6,200 pounds. So sometimes you got to be a little bit careful and exact, put in exactly what you're getting to make sure that you're not in a bad spot. So what if you didn't buy a large SUV? What happens if you bought a small SUV or crossover or even just a sedan? You can still depreciate this and you can still take in an increased amount in the first year, but cars and light SUVs are limited to a maximum of $18,000 worth of depreciation in the first year. You would then take the remainder out of that over the remaining four years of its life. Again, just like anything else here, you don't have to take $18,000 in the first year. If you don't need the deductions, you can take just a regular amount and depreciate over five years. So this is probably one of the most common things where you don't see a lot of people buying luxury sedans, luxury cars for a business. A, you know, there's a little bit harder way to justify the business need for that. But again, it's also a pretty terrible tax deduction. A great example would be, let's say that you go out, you buy a BMW 7 Series. You spend $120,000 on the 7 Series. The maximum deduction that you can get in the first year is $18,000. Versus if you went out and you bought a Mercedes G-Class SUV, $120,000, but you can write off that entire cost in the first year. This is a big reason why SUVs and trucks are one of the most popular deductions for small businesses. So cars, trucks, SUVs, you know, that's one big area of Section 179 expense or writing off the entire cost. But another thing that comes up a lot, especially in shops here, is leasehold improvements. So you're improving your property. You're possibly adding on to your property, modifying your property, adding different things to your property. Anytime that you're improving this, whether it's inside structure or outside structure like parking lots and concrete work and stuff like that, we call those leasehold improvements. So what leasehold improvements are is they're a way to be able to depreciate or possibly take accelerated depreciation depending on what you do. So all of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about here in this section recently changed. And when I say recently, there was a major overhaul in 2018. In 2018, they came out with a different type of leasehold improvement called a qualified leasehold improvement. Now, what is a qualified leasehold improvement and how do we figure it out? 
So we'll talk about how we figure it out a little bit later here. But the big idea behind a qualified leasehold improvements is that that means that they're qualified for accelerated depreciation, meaning we can take the entire cost in the first year. So let's use an example of a toilet. So under the old rules, if you went out and you bought a toilet for $200, technically you were supposed to depreciate that over 39 years because that was a part of the building. So commercial buildings have 39-year depreciable life, meaning if you buy a a building for $390,000, you're going to get a $10,000 depreciation deduction for the next 39 years. This is one of the big things when people say, oh, I have a big tax liability. You know what? I'm thinking about going and buying this piece of real estate. Now, in a lot of situations, that might be a great investment, but commercial buildings are terrible tax depreciation write-offs. So under the old rules of that toilet, you had to depreciate over 39 years. However, with the new rules of qualified leasehold improvements, you can write off the entire cost of that toilet in the first year. So what qualifies for this accelerated depreciation? So the general idea here is if you are doing something that does not expand the existing footprint of your building, then more than likely this qualifies for accelerated depreciation and is a qualified leasehold improvement. Great example of these and some of the most commons that we see are roofs, siding, flooring, interior remodels. Maybe you're adding a waiting area. Maybe you're adding a break room. Maybe you're redoing the kitchen, redoing the bathrooms. Anything that you're doing inside of the structure would qualify for this accelerated depreciation. Now, some of the common things that does not qualify for accelerated depreciation would be adding on additions. Hey, hon, I want to add a bay to my building. I'm going to go from four bays to five bays. Great investment in your business, not a great tax deduction because we're expanding the footprint and cannot take the accelerated depreciation. Now, again, I'd like to put this in real life terms of what this would do. So one of the things in the past and reason why this was changed in 2018 is because a lot of people wanted to reinvest back into their real estate, back into their property. And so just like I made the example on the toilets, which is kind of comical because how small that was, you might say, well, hunt, it's a $200 deduction. I don't really care if I get it now over 39 years. It's not going to move the needle much. Now, let's talk about something like a roof. So I had a client in 2017, thought he was going to save a bunch of money on taxes, went out and put a new roof on his shop, spent $100,000. Under the old rules, a roof was adding to the structure of the building, and we had to depreciate over 39 years. Again, terrible tax deduction in the first year. However, with these new revamp rules, we can now take the entire cost of that roof in the first year. So if you spend $100,000 on that roof, we can write off the entire cost in the first year and pick up all that deduction year one. Don't have to wait 15 years. Take it all right now. Now, on something like uh, roofs, siding, things that we have either a choice of taking it all in the first year or depreciate over 15 years, we get a little bit more aggressive about taking those up front because the alternative is so much longer. What I mean by that is, let's say that you go out and you buy a Ford Explorer for $40,000. We're either going to be able to take that entire cost now or over the next five years. Your income may not be that high. You don't really need the deduction. I'm going to be a lot more inclined to say, you know what? Let's take regular depreciation on that. We'll save the deduction for upcoming years and move on. However, for something like roof and siding, the alternative of not taking it on the first year is to spread that over 15 years. 
that brings that deduction down a lot further and also really extends those deductions out way too far in the future. And so in most situations, we will get a lot more aggressive about these and choose to take the entire cost in the first year. Now, when I talk about this, you know, I see, should we take in the first year deciding if we need to take that? And what do I mean by that? Because conventionally, a lot of people say, well, I want all the deductions that I can right now. I want to take them. There's no reason I have to pay any tax. Let's take it now, now, now. Now, there is something to be said about that. Instant gratification, time value, money, a lot of arguments to take the deductions now versus saving them for the future. But there's really two big things that we look into to figure out if we should or need to take this accelerated depreciation. So the first thing is to keep in mind, did you finance this or did you pay cash on it? So just like I was talking about before with that new roof, if you went out and you got a loan for that new roof of $100,000, that might make me think twice about taking the entire cost in the first year. So if you went out and you got a loan for that roof and you financed that over 10 years, you can still choose to take the entire cost in the first year. You don't have to pay cash for it. Financing counts. Now we have a $100,000 deduction in the first year, but we're going to have that loan payment for another nine years. That means that you're going to have to make profit just to pay that loan payment, but going to have no deductions against it since you've already taken that cost in the first year. So this is definitely something to think about if you're financing, if you're, you know, leasing a piece of equipment, you know, where it's a lease to own, you're going to lease it, you're going to give them a dollar at the end of this now yours, you might think twice about taking the entire cost. Because what I don't like to see is people that have a lot of debt and they don't have any deductions against it. You know, I have clients that have $50,000 of debt service on an annual basis. You know, if you have to service $50,000 in debt, you're going to have to make seventy-five dollars or $80,000 in profit to have enough money to pay the tax on that and then still have money left over to pay the principal payments on the notes. So keep in mind, if, if you've paid cash for this, if you've already used that money on it, then there's usually a very good argument to take that in the first year. If you financed it and you maybe don't have the proper cash to do so, then this is something that we'd look at and we decide, does it make sense to take the entire cost or do we want to leave it over the life of the equipment? Now, again, we still generally will choose to take the accelerated depreciation, but these are some of the things that we go through to make sure that's the right move for our clients. Just want to kind of reemphasize when you're, you know, when we're talking about this, you know, go, this goes back to what we were talking about extensions, you know, being able to go down through of saying, do we need this? What are the deductions looking like? What is the future income looking like? This is all part of the tax planning, all part of the tax preparation process. Not necessarily something that you would see on the end of your tax forms, the actual paper ones, but this is all what goes into making the decision and why it's so important to do the personal and businesses at the same time. Another reason why it's so important here is we need to know, do we need the losses here, right? And so let's say that I have a business. It wasn't a very good year. They're already losing $15,000 in the business. I'm not going to take accelerated depreciation. We already have a loss. Why are we going to try to put this into more of a loss? I want to use that for future years. Even people that have taxable income, does it make sense to take more deductions right now or do we want these in future years? So a great example of that is let's say that usually you make about $200,000 a year. You're probably in a 20% tax category, but this year was a down year and you're only showing about $100,000 of income. Now, if you're married and you're at $100,000 of income, probably paying about 12% tax rate. 
if you're paying a 12% tax rate, I don't want to throw a bunch of extra depreciation and reduce my taxes at a 12% bracket. I would rather save some of that depreciation for future years where I know the income is going to be higher because maybe those same deductions would then be offsetting 24% or 34% or even 37% tax rates. So keep in mind, and we're going to talk about tax rates here next, but does this make the most sense? Am I spending a lot on this depreciation to not get much benefit because my income is already low? On the other side of things, maybe you have a big spike in income. Maybe you sold something. Maybe you had a gain. That is a great year where we would probably want to write off almost anything that we can. Hey, normally this client's in about a 24% tax bracket. This is a killer year. They cashed out on those bonds. They sold these stocks. Their income is sky high. I'm going to write off all the equipment and all the purchase that we possibly can because I know that this tax bracket is higher than what we normally like to see. So keep in mind here, do we pay cash for it? Do we finance this? Do I need the losses? Is this a smart way, a smart area to use these deductions? All of these things go into the equation. This is not necessarily something that you need to ask your accountant. Hey, did you write this off? Did you not write this off? Why? But it's probably something that would be good to understand. Hey, I got that new piece of equipment. I see that we didn't take the entire depreciation. Why not? You know what? You really just didn't need it this year. We're going to use this for future years. There should always be a reason of why you took a certain tax position or took a certain deduction on there. You want to make sure that it makes sense for your individual situation. Don't want to compare yourself to another shop down the street because they might have wrote the entire cost of that equipment off. Doesn't mean that it's right for you specifically. Everyone has a slightly different tax situation and you need to make sure that it's the right solution for you. So speaking of tax rates, I think that this is probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of the tax code. Um, one of my favorite things that I hear is, well, hon, I don't want to make any more money because I don't want to go into the next tax bracket, which is a true thing, right? Tax brackets and taxes fall into different categories called brackets. But what people misunderstand is how those actual tax brackets work. So the way the tax brackets work is they're just that. There's brackets of certain amount of income that once you're in that bracket between zero and $20,000, for example, you're paying 10% tax rate. And then it goes up to 12000 And then it goes up to 24%. And then it finally ends up capping out at 37% after you pass $525,000 in taxable income. So anything from zero to 525 is scaling up at some point. But what happens when you reach that next bracket? Let's say that you're at a 12% tax bracket and you finally reach the 24%. It does not mean that the entire amount of income that you have is now taxed at 24%. It means that any income in that bracket is going to be taxed at 24%. And so a more extreme example here is, like I said before, the highest tax bracket is 37% and it starts at 525000 So if you make $524,000, you're going to pay nothing in the 37% tax bracket. You're actually going to end up paying tax in about five different brackets, 0, 12, 24, 34, 37%, you know, and so whatever falls into those each individual brackets is taxed at that specific rate. However, uh, the misnomer here is that, all right, if I now make $527,000, I'm going to recategorize all of this income and I'm going to pay 37% tax on all of this. That's just not true. What ends up happening is when you pass this tax bracket or this income level, whatever you have over that amount is taxed at that rate. 
And so like the example I said before, 525,000 in taxable income, if you now make $530,000, only $5,000 of that is going to be taxed at 37%. The rest of the income and taxes below that remain unchanged. So whatever income you make falls into that bracket, tax at that next level. As you go up in brackets, that next bracket has become more more expensive for taxes, but it's not going to recategorize any of the thing that you've already done. So that's all regular income tax rates. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of tax rates, but one of the most common other ones that we see is capital gains rates. So you might have heard people talk about cap gains, capital gains. What is it? So capital gains is when you hold an asset and you sell it at a later date. That could be something like a vehicle. That could be something like a piece of real estate. That could also be something like a stock or a bond or a mutual fund. Anytime that you buy an asset that you then sell down the road. Now, there's two different kinds of capital gains here. There's short-term capital gains and long-term capital gains. So short-term means less than one year. Long-term means that you held it for over a year. Now, that year is very important because it changed on how that asset is taxed. So let's say that you go out and you buy Apple stock for $1,000. 60 days later, that's now worth $2,000 and you have a $1,000 gain. If you were to sell that stock after that period, that's going to be taxed like a short-term capital gain because you had it for less than a year. Short-term capital gains are essentially taxed exactly like any other income with a maximum rate of 37%. Now, on the other hand, we have long-term capital gains, something that we held for more than a year. If we have that same example, we had the $1,000 of Apple stock that we then sold for $2,000. If we held that for over a year, then we would still pay tax on it, but we'd be paying long-term capital gains tax rates. The difference here is that long-term capital gains are taxed at a max tax rate of 20%. So regular income and short-term capital gains max out at 37%. And you might see some people that need to hold on to an asset for longer than a year because they don't want to get hit with the higher tax rates. Now, if you are making $550,000 a year, your tax rate is 37% for ordinary income. So if you had that same stock and you decided to hold it for over a year, you would only be paying a maximum of 20%. So that long-term capital gains, no one likes paying taxes, but long-term capital gains is the best possible way that you can be taxed and is the lowest rate. Now, one last thing on that one, the capital gains rate maxing out at 20% has long been something that politicians have been trying to increase. They feel that it favors the rich and they've been trying to increase that. Just a couple months ago, it was one of the bills that went through Congress that they were trying to increase the max capital gains rate to 27%. Now, that 27% wouldn't start until you had gains that exceeded a million dollars. I didn't think it was too bad of an idea because I really didn't think that it would affect most people that we see. However, that ended up getting shot down. So last thing I want to talk to you today about is distributions. So distributions from an S-corporation, distributions from a partnership, something that is very common. And again, something that people just don't really understand on how it's taxed. I'm not going to get into distributions, how we're calculated, how they're funded on it. I just want to talk about how they're taxed and if they are taxed. So what are distributions from an S-corporation? Essentially, a distribution is you distributing the profits of the business. You had a great year. You paid yourself. You paid your employees. Now you have $100,000 in net income. 
you are allowed, being an S-corporation or a partnership, to take a distribution of that money. Essentially, just write a check from your business to yourself personally. And the number one thing that I get asked on this is, Hunt, am I going to get taxed on this money? The answer is no, but it is a little bit more complicated than that. So distributions of profit are not taxed in themselves. However, you had to have profit in order to make those distributions. And profit is taxed. So it's a little bit of a hard idea. You might think it's one and the same, but what I'm trying to say here is what you choose to do with the profits does not change your taxes up or down. A good example here would be to talk about it, that business that made $100,000 a year. So let's say that your business made $100,000 a year and you did not decide to take any of that money out. It is now all sitting in your business bank account. You're going to pay tax on $100,000 because that's what the profits of the business were. If you decided to not keep all of that money in the business and you want to take $50,000 in distributions out, it doesn't change your taxes. You're still going to pay tax on $100,000 of net income. Again, if you have $100,000 of net income and you take all of that money out in distributions, you're going to still pay tax on whatever the net income level is. Now, distributions don't always match up with your net income. So let's say that over the years you had to let the business accumulate cash, accumulate cash, accumulate cash. Now I look at my bottom line for the year and the business about broke even. I went out and I bought a piece of equipment. I was able to depreciate all of that. And the business is showing that it made no money. However, previous years of earnings were still my business bank account, but I wanted to take a distribution. If you wrote yourself a $100,000 distribution check from previous year's profits, that's not going to be taxable to you. You've already paid tax on that. You just decide to leave it in the business. So big thing to think about here is distributions do not matter when it comes to taxes. Only net income does. If you decide to keep that money in the business or keep that money personally, that movement of money, whether it's in or out of the business, does not negatively or positively affect your taxes. I hope that some of these were helpful for you. I hope that this cleared some of the misinformation that I see floating around. You know, you're not an expert on these taxes. You probably don't like taxes, don't even like listening to it. Now, I'll commend you if you made it this far in the episode, but some of this stuff is at least nice to be dangerous on so you know what questions to ask. If you know what questions to ask, it's going to give you answers that are going to allow you to be a better business owner. The only thing that I can tell you here or plead to you is do not take tax advice from someone that is not your accountant. And if you're going to take that tax advice from someone, please run it by your accountant. What works for your shop might not work for another shop. What works for me does not work for you necessarily, right? And so you name it, I've seen it. I've seen people give advice on selling a house. Hey, if you do this, you don't have to pay any tax on it. You know, and then what ends up happening is we get a nasty surprise at the end of the year when I go down through and say, hey, why did you do this, this and this? Oh, someone told me I could do this. Please pick up the phone. Ask these questions, right? If I would have be able to hear that during the year, I could have probably stopped it all together and said, you know what? You're on the right track, but you got to do this, this and this. There's a tons of credits out there. There's tons of deductions out there. Again, it's not a one size fits all solution. What works for a shop that has five locations and has a million dollars in net profit is not going to be the same thing that works for a single owner that has $50,000 of net profit. So make sure that you're talking to your accountant, make sure that you're asking these questions and make sure that you're getting as much understanding as you want to be able to make these right decisions. So that's all for today. Just want to thank you again for joining me. If you have any questions, ideas, or want to be a guest on my show, please shoot me an email. 
Uh, the email is podcast at parmelis.com. And there's a link for that up there in the show notes as well. I hope you found this helpful. And if you do, and you want to share this with someone else that you think could use this information as well, I would really appreciate that. Just want to say thanks again for listening to another episode of Business by the Numbers. Have a great week, and I will talk to you soon. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.